Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the global head of strategy here at Credit Sites, and we are back after a little summer holiday. Now, with the market moving all over the place, rates moving all over the place, I am joined today by Zach Griffiths, our senior U.S. investment grade strategist and head of rates and macro strategy for Credit Sites. He is the expert in all things rates. So he can tell us, is it going to be higher for longer? Is it, Zach? Tell us now. I'm going not that much higher for longer, <laughs> I guess, would be my not-so-scientific initial response. Not that much higher for not that much longer? Exactly. Perfect. Love that. Great visibility on <laughs> the, the forward curve. This is why we have you here for your expert opinions. So with that, let's jump right into it. And we all know that the Fed seems to be driving a good bit of the market gyrations as of late. We have a, a Fed meeting on the do docket for September. Markets not really pricing in much. What do you make of all this? What do you make of current market for Fed rate hike pricing, potential cuts? Where do we stand now? Yeah, so I think my opening comment, while perhaps not the most eloquent, does get at what we're looking at in terms of the market pricing, it seems kind of fair, at least in terms of the near term, really only pricing in a very small chance, perhaps less than 10% of another 25 basis point hike at the September meeting. That's been our call for a while that we've already had the last hike in July. And so really where you've seen the forward curve shift or expectations for the Fed policy rate shift have been much further out the curve, even in the one to two year area, you've seen the implied rates shift up by 10 to 15 basis points over the past couple of months. And I think that's had a larger impact across the curve as we have seen yields move back toward the upper end of the recent range. So coming into this year, Winnie, as you know, we were saying one of the biggest mispricings in the rates market was the rapid shift to fairly aggressive rate cuts in 2023. We are still in the camp that the Fed won't be cutting in 2023, but think the market is probably underappreciating the possibility that they're cutting fairly early on in 2024. And so if you look at what the market's priced for, it's very, very gradual easing, which again is a big shift from what we saw. And in terms of our call, as we expect inflation to come down, which is the key for our call for the Fed to be able to continue or to begin cutting rates in early 2024, it's really about keeping the real policy rate somewhat steady in restrictive territory or near restrictive. And if you think about where inflation has gone as rates have continued to come up, at least until that July meeting, you have a real policy rate, just looking at the nominal policy rate, less the year over year percent change in the core PCE deflator, that puts the real policy rate around 1.4% or so. And according to the New York Fed, 
our star or the real policy rate that is consistent with policy that's neither accommodative or restrictive is around 0.5%. So in general, we're about 100 basis points in restrictive territory. We think that's plenty for now, and we don't think the Fed would want to passively tighten policy further as inflation comes down by leaving the nominal policy rate where it is for too long. A lot of good stuff in there. And I think what jumps out to me most is how the market has so quickly gotten to the other side of the proverbial boat, right? In March, everyone was anticipating a hard landing and fairly rapid Fed rate cuts within the end of 2023. And now we've all moved to this kind of Goldilocks, soft landing, no landing. I know Yellen has been out there kind of saying that she is uh, positive on a, a soft landing outcome. But at the same time, we still have inflation, right? The commodity pricing pressure, which I realize is not in the core read, is something that we need to be cognizant of. What do you think we would need to see for the Fed to get a bit more hawkish and actually continue to hike or message that there are going to be more hikes a bit more explicitly? How long can the Fed stay on hold? Yeah, that's a great point, Winnie. I think to me, obviously, it comes down to inflation data. We had a pause in the beginning of the year on the core goods disinflation side that seems to be reemerging, even though it is a fairly, fairly narrow subgroup of components contributing to that disinflation. If we were to see that reverse, I think that would give the Fed some pause and either cause them to shift back toward more a more hawkish stance. I'd say they're kind of in the hawkish pause stance now, but really shifting toward communicating a higher likelihood of rate hikes down the line. And the reason I think it, it would have to come from the good side, it seems likely that services disinflation will continue. There's a well-understood lag between changes in home prices and how the official CPI and PCE shelter measures are impacted by that. And so if you look at that 12 to 18 month lag, it seems like we have another six months or so of downward pressure. Now, one thing that we've talked about a little bit and I think could be concerning when considering how and when the Fed will begin cutting rates is home prices have started to come back up. And it was a pretty brief dip into outright deflationary territory there. And so I think that's something that we'll need to keep on our radar as we think about the balance of risks toward the Fed shifting to those rate cuts. Now, if, if you go back historically, depending on how many tightening cycles you go back, the Fed has historically began cutting seven to eight months following the last rate hike. And so if you assume that our call is correct and they did the last hike in July, that puts the first cut in March. And one thing that I've been pointing out to clients and thinking about a lot is just how everything in this cycle has happened more rapidly than cycles historically. When it comes to the recession, the policy response, the recovery, the, the rate tightening following the recovery. And I think that's also going to apply to the shift to, to rate cuts down the line. And so I, I don't necessarily think using that historical standard is it's a helpful guideline, but I don't think it's kind of the, the script that, that we need to use. And so, again, it'll come down to inflation. Does it continue to fall the way that we anticipate? If so, we do think that those rate cuts could come a little bit before that historical precedent. But if we start to see underlying signs of pressure, again, I think it'll be more crucial on the good side over the next six months and shift more to shelter concerns 
in the six to 12 month time frame. But if that does begin to reverse, I think the Fed could remain on a hold for longer, but that's not our base case right now. Yeah, the shelter side of things is really tricky, right? Because this is now kind of a supply side issue, which is what we had with so many other factors driving inflation and trying to get a handle on that is arguably not really within the Fed's ability or mandate unless Powell's going to go hang a shingle and start building some houses instead, which I don't know. Was he Sandy? I don't know what, yeah. what kind of craftsman he is. I, I think that your point about the expedited time frame is really important. And I think that you could add on to that beyond an expedited time frame. We also have a really keen look at forward expectations, forward guidance, the said trying to stay ahead of the curve. They got a lot of pressure for being behind the curve in terms of tightening and inflation. So does that mean that they will be a little bit ahead of the curve and we're going to see that more expedited time frame? I realize a lot of this is contingent on inflation continuing to make some progress moving lower. But I think that there is an argument to be ma made that they have to be more ahead of this. They can't just be looking exclusively in the rearview mirror. I think that's a, a great point and sort of inherent in maybe our a little bit more rapid shift to rate cuts than what the market is anticipating and what's priced into Fed funds futures or US dollar OIS markets is, I think, a little bit of a probability weighted hedge on, it seems like, economists are getting more optimistic in terms of the outlook at just the wrong time. Things have been much better than anticipated, but if rates are really going to be higher for longer, consumer excess savings has been drawn down considerably and seems set to run out by the end of this year. Some of the buffers that the U.S. economy has enjoyed throughout 2023 seem likely to fade in 2024. We could add on to that the restart of student loans, which we, we put out a good report on that, that I encourage our listeners to, to take a look at. And maybe the full effect of that doesn't come for another year. But I think these factors are kind of stacking up. I think the most forecasted recession of all time in 2023, it, it doesn't, it hasn't happened yet. doesn't seem likely to happen in our view. Maybe it's more of a 2024 event. And I think that's certainly something to consider it at just the time that the market consensus seems to be shifting in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the long end. We've seen a pretty significant shift over the past few months and long end treasury yields, the 10 year now above our forecast, which was three and three quarters to 4% for the year. And at the same time, we haven't seen those expectations for rate hikes really moving. What on earth is going on in the long end? Yeah, there's been a lot of dynamics affecting the long end. And I, I think it's all about, from a policy perspective, this kind of shift from focusing on the terminal rate, how high is the Fed going to hike the policy rate, to where is it going to be in one year, two years, three years? What is the neutral rate and how is that shifted? And so I, I think you've really seen that. I know I alluded to at the outset of our discussion that while expectations for future hikes haven't really changed, expectations for cuts have. And so pricing out of a more aggressive easing schedule, let's say, I think has had an impact on the long end. And so that's kind of the 
big driver from the monetary policy perspective in the U.S., but you've also had the Bank of Japan with their policy tweak effectively moving the ceiling on the 10-year JGB yield to 1%. I think that had a bit of an impact, but it was really paired with the Fitch ratings downgrade, the bigger boost to treasury supply than anticipated at the August refunding. And I think also inherent in what we've seen in long end yields is this consideration of what is the boost to productivity by artificial intelligence going to be? What does that do to trend GDP growth and therefore what we can expect from longer term yield on a go forward basis? And, and so I think any one of those things on their own might not have had such a large impact shifting yields, let's say 50 basis points higher over the past couple of months, but altogether, and given the timing of all of them, I think that ended up packing a, a fairly potent punch. Now, there are some seasonal factors that we've highlighted both on the uh, investment grade and high yield spread side that kind of push uh, spreads wider over September and October, but we also have that on the risk-free rate or the treasury yield side. And so that could be also playing into what we've seen in aggregate. And so it's it's been a, a big combination of factors and maybe a reconsideration of not only where policy is going, but does the fiscal situation have a larger impact than it's had? And I do think there are some offsetting factors there, but those are some of the key drivers of the move in yields at the long end recently in our view. Yeah. So a lot of those key drivers, taking aside seasonals, which are presumably short term, it doesn't really seem like there's an end for the Bank of Japan policy tweak or the ratings downgrade and, you know, fiscal deficits, treasury supply, you know, productivity boosts. So are 10-year yields this level now? Are they going to go higher? What would it take for 10-year yields to actually reverse course and start to move lower again overall? Yeah, I think one of the underlying structural demand factors that we look at is the kind of U.S. corporate pensions as a, an LDI player and, and just looking at how they've gone from really underfunded since the financial crisis to in a much better position from an assets and liability perspective. And I think when you look at real yields, 10-year real yields around 2%, the nominal 10-year around 430 or so, I think those are going to prove to be great long-term opportunities to lock in longer duration. I would extend that out certainly for life insurers and these pension funds out to the 30-year space as well. And so when you have these funded ratios up above 100% as equities and credit have also done quite well this year, despite expectations for a very difficult year. You've had assets remain elevated and continue to grow while at the same time, the higher rates have reduced the present value of the pension benefit obligation. And so I think that leads to de-risking in portfolios and a demand for very safe, long duration credit or treasuries in this case. And so I, I think that over the course of August, you know, you have lightly staffed trading desks and you have PMs on vacation. I think now that we're kind of back in our seats, maybe people aren't stepping in to really snap up duration right now. But I think that gradually comes back into play, which pushes yields 
down, just as, again, I, I do think this is a strong opportunity, whether it be on an inflation adjusted or nominal basis to, to lock in yields that we haven't seen in quite some time. Yeah. And I just want to give a shout out to all the PMs who were able to take a vacation because the past 18 months have been brutal for fixed income and corporate credit portfolio managers. We see you. Keep it up. There's a light at the end of this tunnel, I promise. I hope just working with the credit sites team and we'll try to help you as best we can. And one other thing in terms of kind of long end yields is just the curve inversion and so much cash in the front end of the curve in money market funds, all of those things. And I think that you really have to see the Fed start to message an easing or a return to neutral to get some of that cash off the sidelines. And I'm speaking personally because I just keep rolling T-bills. Although you did tell me to buy some TLT and I did. So there I got go. that going for me. That's right. It fits in with every uh, well. Yes, absolutely. Barbell strategy is in effect the, on the, yep. the credit sites, credit strategy team. I also exactly. wanted to highlight just some issuance trends in the U.S. investment grade market as of late, where we've seen a maybe capitulation from some of the companies in the universe in that there has been a higher concentration of 10-year issuance this year and a lower concentration of very front-end issuance this year when we compare it to 2022 and 2021. And there are a range of factors driving that decision, but I think part of it is the higher for longer and the fact that over the past 18 months, you have not been rewarded for waiting. If anything, you've been punished in terms of all-in borrowing costs if you didn't kind of capitalize on a good week in the market. And so we definitely are seeing some change in sentiment across investment grade. So let's talk about curve shape. Since early July, we've seen a bear steepener, which has been a little bit nasty. That's bringing twos, tens, a little bit less inverted than the recent peak inversion levels. What should we make of this? It's definitely surprising and uncommon to see a bear steepener at, at this point in the cycle, especially if the Fed is in fact done with rate hikes as we anticipate. And so I think some of those factors we just discussed in terms of what's pushed yields at the long end higher, that's really been the key drivers of the bear steepener as well as, as policy certainly remains elevated and the market is looking for the policy rate to remain more elevated than we expect for longer. And so I, I think the move at the front end has been relatively muted as, as those shifts have been a little bit more gradual, whereas some of the, again, the, the BOJ, some of the fiscal deterioration concerns, those are, are having a much larger impact on the longer end of the curve. And so I think, again, this is presenting an opportunity because typically after the Fed's final rate hike of the cycle, the long end of the curve starts to fall fairly rapidly. And, and that even occurs before we see the real bull steepening set in. So again, I, I think this is a, a good opportunity to start gradually adding duration to portfolios. And I'm skeptical that the bear steepener can continue. And over, let's say the next six to 12 months, the steepening of the curve that we anticipate will really be a bull steepening, which is more typical of an end of a tightening cycle and shift toward easing, even if it is a gradual easing back toward neutral, not necessarily 
a rapid cut to zero on Fed funds, which we've grown accustomed to over the past 15 years or so. Back to zero, not necessarily the playbook. So when do we see twos, tens flat? When do we get back out of this inverted territory? Yeah, our base case is we're back to flat by the middle of next year. So call it the end of, of the first half. And the path there, we have the twos, tens curve at negative 40 basis points at the end of this year. And so that is just a bit more rapid steepening of the curve than what the forwards imply. I think at mid-year next year, we're at negative 10 basis points, according to the forwards. And we, we think we could be all the way back to flat. So not a, a crazy call, or at least not saying there's a crazy mispricing in the forwards, but we do think that steepening can be a bit more aggressive. And it, it really comes down to our Fed funds call, which is for a little bit steadier easing in 2024 than what the market currently anticipates. Slow and steady for the Fed, unlike right. the hiking cycle. So what other curves do we look at? What else should we be keeping an eye on in order to gauge maybe longer term expectation? Yeah, the other very widely tracked part of the treasury curve is the 530s. And it's kind of a way to look through some of the more near-term shifts in monetary policy expectations in a way to look at longer-term expectations in terms of the neutral policy rate and what growth and inflation will ultimately be like over the longer term. I, I think that you also get historically looking at changes in the fiscal picture, whether it be perceived or realized, it tends to have a bigger impact at the, the very long end of the curve. And so I think, you know, looking at 30s sort of responding to concerns on the fiscal front, you know, you could get some steepening there kind of alongside that Fitch ratings downgrade and in, in the bigger than anticipated increase to treasury auction sizes. But on the other side of that coin, is the liability-driven investing demand factors that, that we talked about. And that's really a big part of the sponsorship for the 20-year and 30-year sector. And so that, that's something to keep an eye on. I think the steepening there, again, kind of comes back to some of the themes we've already discussed, but you could see at least some temporary flattening if some of these big LDI investors come in and say, you know what, we want to really lock in a lot of long duration here. We don't need to really make up anything on, on the funding side instead in terms of stretching into real estate or alternatives or, or even equities. And so we want to just match our asset and liability duration and kind of take that approach. And so that those are some of the, the dynamics that, that we look at continue, uh, considering the long end or the, the 530s part of the curve. So let's move it into the credit market a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on positioning around the credit curve, kind of your sense for maybe where clients and dealers are positioned, and then where do you see value? Yeah, so IG inventories appear to have risen fairly considerably. And so historically, dealers have consistently had a net short position, really going back to the start of the hiking cycle around February of, of 20. So we've seen a bit of a, a shift there. And so I, I think that's something to keep in mind when considering some of these tactical moves. So the front end inventories have been fairly stable. And so when we think about how to position on the curve, where do we think there's value? As you alluded to, Winnie, at the outset, we've 
been in the barbell approach camp, kind of balancing the reinvesting risk concerns of merely hiding out in P-bills or even the two-year part of the curve. And think again, as I've said several times now, that the adding long duration here is is kind of, this is going to be a, a good opportunity. And when you think about the credit curve on a yield to worst basis, it's certainly very flat. That's been the case for quite some time. And just the shape of the curve on its own really doesn't give you much reason to, to want to extend out. But as we've said, we do think that long duration is, is set to start moving lower fairly quickly, even before the curve starts to steepen out. And, and then when you look at the spread curve, there's a pretty nice slope, you know, from the front end, let's say the one to three year area out to the seven to 10 year area. And so those excess return investors get a nice little pickup there. And so just thinking about the balance of risks and the shape of the spread curve relative to the shape of the yield to worst curve, we still think that the barbell approach, having that exposure in the one to three year space, capturing very high yields with not a lot of duration risk and kind of balancing that and in increasing convexity by owning the, the seven to 10 year part as well makes sense. We've been in that camp for a while, but we think that that's a, a good place to remain for the next, call it six to nine months. The barbell has it for sure. Do you think we'll ever see the 10-year treasury at 50 bips again, like we did in February and March of 2020? I think you need to have another pandemic-like event for that to happen. So I really, really hope not. <laughs> Zombie apocalypse. So yeah, like, please that no. That was wild. So wild. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little traumatized from it, but man, what a Same. learning experience. So how have treasury options gone recently? We've had quite a few and all coinciding with some kind of heavy hitting macroeconomic data. Yeah, so far this week, we've had the three-year auction, which actually went fairly poorly. You had a one basis point tail on that auction, just indicating that the auction clearing yield was above where the when issue security was trading right before the auction. So that kind of indicates weaker demand. And, and you see that in the actual statistics with primary dealer takedown jumping to 20% from 10% the last auction, which I think was an all-time low, but a six-month average of 15%. So end-user demand definitely took a dip for the three-year, which perhaps is not so surprising given the shape of the curve. The twos, threes curve is, is still about 30 basis points inverted. So again, not a strong driver of demand or not a good reason to move out the curve just that one additional year. The 10-year auction went pretty well today. It came through on the screws and user demand metrics were broadly in line with recent averages. You saw a little bit of a, a pullback in indirect bidder participation, which was the slack was picked up by direct bidders. And that's kind of consistent with what we saw at the August refunding auctions. The 30-year was the one that didn't go so well and seemed to help push yields higher at the long end of the curve, kind of even creeping down into the 10-year space, even though that particular auction went well. So we'll be keeping an eye on the 30-year. Tomorrow, of course, we have US CPI in the morning, which will be key in terms of shaping future policy expectations and, and potential demand for the 30-year, as well as driving yields going forward. You get the back-to-back -back with the, the ECB on Thursday. So a couple key macro events to focus on when thinking about where yields go from here. But I think that overall, the trend in inflation has kind of shifted toward more of a downside surprise tilt over the past several prints versus what had been an extremely consistent upside surprise shift. And so 
that's something that we expect to continue and, and should help yields kind of ease back down toward our 3.75 to 4% target on the 10 year as we look forward. All right, Zach, thank you so much. You heard it from him. Tilt towards downside surprise on inflation. I hope that is the case for sure. It would be lovely to see our forecasts continue to materialize. It's been a great year at Credit Sites in no small part because of your expertise, Zach. So thanks for joining me today and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Winnie. This was great. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.